going to be in uh, Ezra 4, 5, and part of 6 this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. And as we look back several thousand years and look at what happened in Jerusalem when those you sent back were facing the difficulties as they sought to rebuild the temple, we ask that you'd help us to learn the lessons that are there for us as well. And so we thank you and praise you for your word. And we ask that you'd help us to learn it, understand it, and obey it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things I used to do when I lived in La Paz, Bolivia, was to go down to... I went to several of them, but some of the some of the big, huge Catholic cathedrals. And I would just go in and sit. And I would sit and I would watch what was happening and I would pray for the city and I would pray for those people that I saw. Um, and I eventually would make my way through through the, the building and out. And, and I, I noticed architectural things and things that were artistic. And then as I looked at the front of this place, uh, San Francisco in, in La Paz, I noticed the picture, you know, the statue of St. Francis and some others that were there. I also noticed some very grotesque, and I mean really ugly-looking little figures that were in the front of the cathedral as well. And I had no clue who that would be or what that was all about. And so I asked one of the senior missionaries, I said, listen, I noticed these statues, and then I noticed this. And he said, yeah. He said, that's the Inca earth goddess Pachamama. I said, what? He said, yeah, that's Inca earth goddess Pachamama. And so what had happened was, um, what happens in a lot of times in, in, in countries like Bolivia, is that when the Spaniards came in, there was a forced conversion to Catholicism, and they were taught certain things, and they had to reverence this and that. And what the Incas did was they said, sure, we can add another god. And so Mary became Pachamama in their thinking. So when they're thinking Virgin Mary, they're thinking Earth Goddess Pachamama. And, and this kind of mixture of paganism and Roman Catholicism kind of happened all over South America. Um, we call it syncretism, when things get mixed. And that's the danger of what could be going on here in this chapter as we look at the start of the process, or continuing the process of building the temple. So, you know, the nation of Israel had returned to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the city and the temple. Um, they wanted to restore worship to Yahweh, the true God, through the sacrificial system, and and they had done that. We read about that last time. We studied that last time. Uh, so they had rebuilt the altar on its location, started up the whole sacrificial system, and then they had laid a foundation for the actual temple itself, and they had dedicated it, and that's it. It stopped right there. And so now, out of nowhere, we've got these people that come. And the people that are referred to as the those that are uh, of the land, many times it's, it's we don't know positively who they are exactly, but we do know that when the northern ten tribes were taken out, Assyria resettled a whole bunch of people into the northern part of Israel. Um, they intermarried with some of the people who were still there. They adopted some of the customs, and if you remember in the time of Christ, that whole area was known as Samaria, and there were people who were hybrid, if you will. The Jewish people did not accept them because they believed other things along with. And so it's very possible the people we're referring to are some of those people. 
Uh, in Jerusalem area as well, there may have been some remnant that was left behind that intermarried with some of the pagan people around. And so now you've got a situation where people that are around are coming. And we see that in verse 1, and they want to be a part of this. So verse 1, and this describes who they are very clearly. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding the temple of God, uh, of the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other elders and said, Hey, let us build with you. We will worship your God. At, we worship your God as you do. We have sacrificed to him. And so they're saying, Hey, we've, we've been worshiping your God all along. We've been sacrificing to him all along. Um, but it's interesting that the writer, Ezra, says the enemies. So these people were against Israel, but they wanted to kind of join in, uh, whether it was to thwart things or to distort them. And so they asked to be able to help to build uh, and they said, no, we don't want any part of what you are bringing us. Now, in Second Kings 17, it tells us where some of these people came from. There's a big description of that. Uh, they were descendants of the people whom Assyria brought back, again, perhaps mixed in with some of the Jewish people that may have been there. And Second Kings tells us that uh, Assyria first resettled these people because they didn't want the land to be barren. And so they took the Israelites out and let them, they never came back, the ten tribes, put other people there, and now the other people, the people from the southern kingdom have returned to Jerusalem. So that's kind of where we're at historically. Um, the common belief of the day was that there were local gods. Okay, so you had the god of the mountains, or the god of the sea, or the, the god of, of, of the fields. There's all kinds of different ways. Egypt had all kinds of gods of every little thing imaginable. And so when these people in the northern tribes started having a whole lot of problems and they were being killed, many of them, in, in natural ways, they said to the king of Assyria, hey, send us a priest from the people who were here so we can learn some of their stuff. We can offer sacrifices to their God and everything will be okay. So what did they do? They joined the things, some of the things of the Hebrew people with all the things that they believed. There was syncretism going on. And that's the people who are right now trying to say, hey, we want to be a part of this. We want to be a part of this building. Um, verse 3, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the other leaders replied, You may have no part of this work. We alone will build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus demanded. So they said, Listen, uh, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want any help from people who really aren't believers in the true God. And we know that you aren't because of the way that you've been living up until now and the sacrifices that you make. Verse 4, then the logical residents, the local residents, sorry, tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. So now, we want to be a part of it. Oh, you don't want us to be a part of it? Fine, we're going to shut you down. That's, that's what's going on here. And so what did they do? Verse 5, they bribed agents of the government to work against them and frustrate their plans. And this went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus. Now, why they didn't send somebody back to King Cyrus and say, help, we're having these problems, we have no idea. Um, and so it went from the time of King Cyrus all the way through several kings to King Darius of Persia um, when he took the throne. So this is one of those areas where we need to stop just for a minute and think this through. Uh, verses 1 to 5 are chronologically right where we are they're ready to build the temple then there's 6 through 23 that are not chronological some of the kings that are mentioned here happen quite a bit later 
But they're brought in by Ezra with one purpose in mind, to show that the Jews arrived and persecution started, and that persecution continued all during that time, even when Ezra finally showed up, and then when <clears throat> when Nehemiah showed up, persecution took place all that all during that time. So the kings that he brings in and mentions aren't really dealing with this immediate time frame, but they're showing us the tone of what the kingdom did. And so this is this is what he does as he brings these verses in for us to see, even though they're out of place chronologically, they are in place when it comes to persecution, starting now and continuing all through the end of Nehemiah. And that's the point that Ezra is trying to make here. So this parenthesis there that he puts in here from verse 6 to 23 is describing all of that, describing the opposition. And for over a hundred years, this opposition continued for the Jews in, in Jerusalem and the building of the temple. Um, <clears throat> so in verse 6 through 16, we've got a letter being sent to Artaxerxes, not about the temple, though if you read it, you kind of wonder what is he talking about. It's really talking about rebuilding the wall. The temple had already, was already finished by the time this letter was sent. And they were talking about, hey, you can't let this city rebuild and be here. That's the whole point of the verses 6 through 16. And then in 17 through 23, you've got the answer from Artaxerxes to that first letter saying, stop them, keep them from building the wall. So it gets a little bit mixed up if you don't understand that when he's talking about stopping them, he's not talking about the temple at this point. It's later, the temple's already been built, and he's talking about uh, the building of the wall. So verse 6, Xerxes is mentioned. He's also known as Hazarwares in the book of Esther. Uh, he's the king who reigned during the events of Ezra 7 through 10. So we're still in the first six chapters. Ezra shows up in chapter 7, and this is what the time frame that, Xer- that Xerxes lived. Are Xerxes' letters to and from and about stopping the construction of the city wall? Um, <clears throat> verse 12, he says, Let it be known to the king of the Jews who came from you, have returned to us to Jerusalem. They have are rebuilding a rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. So this is what they're accusing the Jews of. They're building the city, and the minute the walls get done, you know, you're in trouble. They will no longer pay tribute. They'll no longer obey you. And they're going to become their own nation again, and, and you will be in, in very bad shape. Um, so verse 23, finally, and the king says, okay, stop them. In verse 23, they hurried to Jerusalem then with a show of strength and forced the Jews to stop building. Now, this is the city wall again that we're talking about. So as we're talking about this and we see these two letters that have been brought in to this section to show us that persecution took place over a long period of time, this is what they're saying is, okay, stop. And they did. They stopped the, the people working on the wall. Now, verse 24 is the next verse after verse 5 chronologically, okay? So verse 5, they, they were bribing people to try and stop all the work that was going on. Verse 24, so the work of the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped. Now, it wasn't because it was ordered to be stopped by anybody, but there was discouragement and there were people who had been, you know, just no longer wanted to give their heart and soul to this project anymore, and it was just too hard, and so they quit. And the temple remained or remained unbuilt. They had the altar and sacrifice still going. They had the foundation of the temple. And that's it. It stopped right there. Um, 18 years go by before they start building it. 18 years is what, what happens in that point. So the opposition that 
um, during Cyrus's reign to that work on the temple, suspended it uh, until the second year of Darius, and then 18, that's 18 years later, they start again. So, you know, the tactics that the people of the land used, the discouragement, the distraction, the fear, worked for a time. There was 18 years when the people of God who went back specifically to build the temple did nothing on the temple. Now, there's an implication here. Um, don't know if you've ever been discouraged or if you've ever gotten distracted and, and lost sight of the things of the Lord and what really matters um, when, you, when you're struggling emotionally and you're hurting in, in some way. It, it's real easy to slip into patterns um, that aren't very godly and that aren't helpful in our walk with God. Sometimes people will eat more than they should or just sleep and sleep and sleep. Others um, become bad-tempered. Some will binge-watch TV or movies, do books. Most of the time when we are doing those kinds of things, we are trying to lose ourselves so that we don't have to think or feel or process what's really going on. And, and if we're honest, sometimes when we're really down, we want to go somewhere where we don't have to deal with what's causing this. I want to deal with the fact that maybe there's some things that need to happen in my walk with God, and, and I'm, just, I'm just really not sure I want to do the hard work. Sometimes we get in those places. Now, one of the reasons I love God's Word is the Bible gives us everyday help uh, for those kinds of hardships and struggles and uh, to keep us from being distracted or discouraged. Hebrews 10, uh, verses 21 to 25. Love these verses. Since we have a great high priest who rules over the house of God, over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting Him. So here the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you know what? There are hard things. The situation that you guys are dealing with in the church now are very difficult. But we have a high priest. We have a God who is present and a God who invites us to come to Him with our hearts full of trust. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with the blood, with Christ's blood to make us clean. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. And I love this next verse. Let us hold tightly or firmly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. We say we're believers. We say we're Christians. We say that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Then when everything goes badly and we don't even feel like it, hang on tight. Don't let go. Those are the times to say, Lord God, help! And then hang on. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. Why? God can be trusted to keep His promises. And so when I remember God's promise to be with me no matter what, I hang on to that. When I realize that He's promised to lead me and guide me, I hang on to that. And the promises of God that I'm right now I'm struggling and hurting and I don't even maybe understand where it's all going, I can say, okay, God, I still believe in You and I know You know what You're doing. And we hang on. Then he thinks, says in verse 24, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. 
And let us not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of His return is drawing near. So just kind of thought through some of these things and put it in a a little bit of a chart. When we are discouraged or we're distracted and we lose our focus, how do we get that back? Well, one of the things is we refuse to give up. Just refuse. That's what the enemy wants from us. The enemy wants us to say, okay, I'm done. I quit. We're reminded in Hebrews, don't. Hang on. Refuse to give up. Second one, draw near. Right into his presence. Um, you are always welcome through Jesus Christ. I am always welcome because of what Christ did. There's never a sign saying, sorry, you can't be here, or sorry, you're not welcome. That's not true for the Christian. No matter how far we've stumbled, no matter how far we've slidden, we can come back and say, oh, God, help. And we are welcome. Always welcome. Hold on to hope without wavering. Hold tightly to the hope that you profess. You have nothing else to hang on to. Just say, okay, Lord God, help me hang on to you. Help me to hang on to Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible told me so. Help me to hang on. Remember, God is faithful. We can trust Him. And so we can come to Him and look to be encouraged. Seek to encourage and help others. These last two are outward focused. The rest of them are kind of to help us be encouraged. But this helps us to take our eyes off ourselves too when we seek to encourage and help other people. We think of ways that we can motivate and encourage them and we seek them out and say, Lord, how can I bless them? Intentionally seek those who are hurting that's something that sometimes we don't want to do. Maybe we're struggling and we just don't want to deal with something and, and we just can't handle another hurting person in our thinking. That's what we're saying. And yet those are the times when we need to look out and say, okay, God, I, I can't do this anyway. You need to help me. Show me who needs, who needs to feel your touch in some special way. Carl and I were talking a while back about some friends of ours in ministry. <clears throat> They've been going through some really difficult times and and uh, Carol got an email from the pastor's wife, and, and she, she basically said this. I'll, I'll just share it with you. I came home from Sunday morning very discouraged, wondering, will God ever use me? Do I have anything of value to offer this church? Needless to say, my thoughts were on myself. My poor husband listened to me as I whined on the way back to church that night. And during the service as we sang and he preached, I was overcome with a sense that God loves me and that my being there was for my good. After church, I was able to pray with a young mother who had been struggling all week. What a paradox. The weak prays with the weak, and both are strengthened. Isn't that cool? What a blessing to be able to look around, even when we're struggling, even when we're hurting, and say, Lord, who who do you want me to impact today? Who can I encourage and help today? We cannot let discouragement or distraction make us quit or give up or take our focus totally off God. We need to draw close to Him and come back and then use that to reach out to others as well. Let's move on to chapter 5. Now, 18 years has gone by since the last part of chapter 3. 18 years have passed. 
And it says in verse 1, At that time the prophet Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. They prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And, and really, the whole change in what happens with the building of the temple starts with Haggai and Zechariah. So don't be surprised. Next week, we're going to do this chronologically, jump into Haggai for two weeks, and then we'll come back and finish, finish Ezra after that. So we're kind of trying to do it chronologically. So Haggai and Zechariah come, <clears throat> and they prophesy to the Jews in Judah. They prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel. And Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua son of Jehozadak, responded to the call to worship and the call to work that Haggai and Zechariah had. They responded by starting again to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. So you have the prophets come. They begin to say, hey, guys, you know, and essentially one of the messages was, what are you doing? You're focusing on your homes and yourself and your livelihoods, and you've decided God's house just doesn't matter. And that's the way they kind of challenged them. And so Zerubbabel, the governor, and Yeshua and others began to respond by coming back to the temple and starting to build the temple. And look at what it says. And the prophets of God were with them and helped them. So they didn't just come in and, and talk and sit back and watch. They came in and challenged and exhorted, encouraged, and then rolled up their sleeves and got to work. That's really cool. So they got involved in the building of the process of the temple as well. Here we have a person we're meeting for the first time. His name is Tatenai, governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, and Shezar uh, and their colleagues soon arrived in Jerusalem. And so here you've got the governor of the whole trans-Euphrates, that's from the Euphrates over towards the, the Mediterranean. Um, he's in charge of that whole promise. And he hears they're building the temple after all the time when nothing was going on. And he comes running over and he says, who gave you permission to rebuild this temple and restore the structure? And so he, he, by the way, is known to us from other sources in archaeology and history. But he comes and he wants to shut them down and, and make them stop what they're doing. <clears throat> so they also, uh, at that point, the Tenai and his people asked for the names of all the men working on the temple. So here they come, they, they're threatening and trying to tell them to stop. And then say, listen, by the way, we're taking down all of your names and we're sending them back to the, to, to the king. Let them know that what you guys are doing here. And so they take down the names. And then he said, but because their God was watching over them, the leaders of the Jews were not prevented from building until the report was sent by Tidarius and he returned his decision. So what could have happened is they could have said, okay, we're shutting you down, we're going to send a letter, and if they say it's okay, well, then we'll let you start up again. That's not what happened. They said, we're going to send a letter. Let's get all your names here. And this is really intimidation at this point. We're sending your names back to the king, and they're assuming this is illegal, that they have not been given the right to, to build this temple. And so they send that off, but they keep right on working, keep right on building, keep on taking the temple and making it uh, better and better each day. <clears throat> so verses 6 to 17, this copy of the letter sent to King Darius asking that they make a royal a search of the royal archives to see if rebuilding the temple was really authorized by Cyrus. Now, it's interesting we see here all through these two chapters there are letters going back and forth which have been taken out of the historical records and placed right into 
the book of Ezra. The other thing that is interesting to see, several times there's a reference made to make a search of the archives. You know, we, we don't think of the fact that back in that time frame they really did have writing and they did, really did keep records. And, and so they many times edicts or pronouncements were made and a copy was put into the royal archives in case it was ever needed. So what they're saying back now, sending back now is look for it, see if it's there. Did Cyrus really give them permission to build this temple? That was what they had to look for. Um, we're going to jump over the first five verses uh, of chapter six and jump right into verse six. So, so King Darius sent this message. Um, now therefore, Tatenai, governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, uh, and Sheshar, and your colleagues, and other officials west of the Euphrates, I love this, stay away. You want to know what's going on over there? Stay away. The command from the king to you is, stay away from the people who are rebuilding this temple. Don't go anywhere near it. Now, <laughs> it doesn't end there. I mean, I think he'd have wished he hadn't sent this at the end of this. But he says, okay, stay away. Don't go near there. Verse 7, do not disturb the construction of the temple of God. Let it be rebuilt on its original site. Do not hinder the governor of Judah and the elders of the Jews' people. So this is awesome news for the, for the Israelites. Really bad news for Tateni. And then he goes on to say, moreover, so he's already answered the question, yes, they have authority to rebuild. He could have just said that and that'd be the end of it. But he adds, moreover. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to help these elders and the Jews as they rebuild the temple of God. I love it. You must pay the full construction costs. Okay? So it's not even the Israelites having to come up with the money for it now. He's saying to the governor who taxes the whole area, sends taxes to Babylon or Persia, and keeps a part of that taxes, from your portion of the taxes, pay for the temple. It's up to you now. You are going to pay for this temple to be built. And I just sat back and laughed when I read it. This is awesome. God knows what he's doing. So you must pay the full construction cost without delay from my taxes collected in the province west of the Euphrates so that the work will not be interrupted. So moreover, there's something new. I'm adding this. You have to help. You are responsible for the costs. You need to pay in full all the construction costs. Then he goes on to say, this is still under the moreover, Give the priests in Jerusalem whatever is needed in the way of young bulls, rams, male lambs, for burnt offerings presented to the Lord God of heaven. So, hey, you know, they've got the daily morning and evening sacrifice. They've got these monthly things. Whatever it is that they need, give them to them. You provide the animals for the sacrifices. And without fail, provide them with as much wheat, salt, wine, olive oil, as they need for each day. Because there were other kinds of offerings, too, that they gave. And so... You're sitting there, and, and he, and you know, he, he was thinking, good, I'm going to stop these people dead. The word comes back, and not only did he not stop them, he now is stuck paying for it and providing for the people he wanted to destroy. Um, in verse 10 it says, Then they will be able to offer acceptable. Oh, the reason for all of this was the king um, Darius said, 
they, verse 10, will be able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God of heaven and pray for the welfare of the king and his sons. I want you to do all this because I want those people praying for me and my sons. Now, again, the reason for all of this was that God was working in a very unique and special way. Verse 11, those who violate this decree in any way will have a beam pulled from their house. They will be lifted up and impaled on it, and their house will be reduced to a pile of rubble. So he said, let me just tell you what's going to happen if you guys decide you're not going to do this. We'll rip some kind of a beam out of your house. We will impale you on that beam, and we will flatten your house and turn it into the town garbage heap. So that's what's going to happen if you don't follow through and obey what I'm telling you to do. And then he says, May the God who has chosen the city of Jerusalem as a place to honor his name uh, destroy any king or nation that violates this command and destroys this temple. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be obeyed with diligence. And so, I again, I, I read this uh, m- many times this past week, and every time I got to that, I thought, oh my gosh, this guy just didn't know what was coming, you know? I'm going to stop these people. I'm going to shut them down. No, you're not. You're going to help pay for it all. And you're going to supply all that they need. So here are the commands that Darius gave kind of in order. The first one he said was, stay away. Uh, don't check up on them. Don't go near. Leave them alone. Let them do their work. Second thing, do not interfere. Don't try to stop them. Don't try to discourage them. Third one, let them rebuild. Get out of the way. The project is sanctioned by the king. Pay their expenses. From the royal treasury, the revenue of trans-Euphrates. Next one, provide what is needed for the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices, weekly, monthly, and do this with diligence. Do it now and keep on doing it. Do not delay, do it. And so that's the warning. I mean, and if you don't do this, then there's the idea of being impaled and having your home destroyed and turned into a, a rubbish heap. There's an implication here for us, I think. The sovereign God is so clear in these in this passage. I mean, you read these chapters and you watch the flow and you go, wow, this is good, this is bad. This is, no, it's all good. God knows what he's doing. Even when they stop the work and they complain and they do all these things, God has a plan that's just beyond anything they could have thought or imagined. And so they, they've been discouraged, but finally they start to build the temple and, and um, the governor of Trans-Euphrates tries to shut them down. That doesn't work. It doesn't work because God is the one who's doing the work. God was watching over. God was saying, no, this cannot be stopped. This is something that I have commanded. Uh, chapter 5, verse 4. They also asked the names of the men working at the temple. This is when Tatenai wanted to send a, a letter back. Uh, and it was an attempt to intimidate. Are you going to put our names in a document, send it to the king? Oh, no. And I'm sure Tateni was saying, hey, he was thinking the king would write back and say, all those men you listed, arrest them, put them to death, whatever. But, verse 5, but because their God was watching over them, the leaders of the Jews were not prevented from building until a report was sent from Darius. And so this is the thing that as I was going through these verses, their God was personal. He belonged to them and they belonged to him. And so it was a very, very personal thing that the Jewish people are, are, are working with. This is, this is their God. This isn't just one of many gods that they have in a little shelf somewhere. This is the real God, the true God of the universe. And, and he was personal. Second thing, he was a God who was protecting them. I mean, 
How could it have ended any better than this? They tried to stop him. And what happened was instead of stopping him, they had to pay for it all. And they had to make sure that nothing hindered the work. That's what the people who wanted to stop it had to do. That was now their role because that's what God had ordained. And then their God was preventing any interference or stoppage of work on the temple. There's nobody that could touch them now. They had the decree from the king that reaffirmed the decree that Cyrus had given many years before, and now they have the decree that's been strengthened and built up by Darius himself. And God was at work for his people, his nation, and his temple. Like I said, you've got to wonder if Tatene had known what was coming if he would have still sent the letter. I would think not. Um, Chapter 6, verse 8 says this. And this is what was the end result. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury. And here's the clarification from the revenues of trans-Euphrates. Okay, so, you know, the King Darius isn't going to suffer any loss in the collection of taxes. He's going to get his cut. And then they have to pay for the temple out of everything that's left over. And so the king is very, very clear about what he wants. So God in his sovereignty said, my temple will be built. Not only will it be built, but in this case, it's going to be paid for by the people um, of, not of Babylon, but Persia. So no matter what we are facing, and this is really important for us to think through, whatever we are facing, God knows. When they started building that temple and they had these people come and try to stop them, God knew. And they just kept going. So no matter what we're facing, we know that God knows and we, we know we can trust him. God is sovereign. And he is the sovereign God of the universe. And we can trust him in all things. One of the things that struck me as I was reading this passage, and this is our takeaway, <clears throat> struck me how easy it is to get distracted and, you know, disillusioned and frustrated and lose focus. Uh, I don't know what kind of week you've had. This week for me has been one of those ones where I kind of felt like I was running 100 miles an hour and trying to figure out what was going on. And so there were many things that were distracting and frustrating. And sometimes when we get into those kinds of situations, we lose our focus about who God is and what He does and who He is in our lives. And distraction is a tactic of the enemy who would love to interfere with the lives of his people. And we all have responsibility. We have demands on our lives. We have energy that we need to, to spend. And sometimes everything that's going on around us can be very overwhelming. And it, when we're overwhelmed, many times, those are the times we begin to lose a little bit of our focus and don't see the perspective that God wants us to see. We all have um, families that we care for, friends that we care for, neighbors that we want to encourage and help. And we want to continue to, to walk with the Lord. And, and so how do, how do you, with all this going on and all of the things, and you feel like one day you get hit and then another day you get hit with something else and, and you barely feel like you can keep going. So how do we keep our focus? I think we need to continually be thinking through, how do I refocus? How do I change the perspective I have now, which is looking at everything that's going on and feeling like I don't have any hope? How do I change that to to focusing on the Lord again. And there's some verses I just want to share. I call them the refocus verses. Philippians 4, 8. Fix your thoughts 
on what is true, honorable, and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. So fix your thoughts on what's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Then think about what is excellent and worthy. Okay, so things are going on. There's all kinds of things I'm struggling with. And, and, and maybe one of my kids has just given me just a lot of heartache. Fix my thoughts on what is honorable, what is right, what is pure. Maybe the whole family is just struggling and can't get along. And again, I can focus my thoughts. I can think about what is excellent, what is worthy. I can pray through that lens. Lord, what is it that I long to see in this broken situation here? And I pray, Lord God, bring Your peace into this and help me to be a peacemaker. And we focus on what is praiseworthy. When we're feeling discouraged, we can focus on what is excellent, what is worthy of praise. That's just one verse. Fix your thoughts on what is true, lovely, honorable, pure. Think about what is excellent and worthy. And we want to move from distractions and discouragement with a new focus. We need to fix our thoughts. That's what the verse is saying. Fix your thoughts on what is, and it gives you that wonderful menu to use. With all the struggles and temptations that we face every day in the real world, we may question our ability to do all that we feel is required. We may feel like we just don't have anything to give and not enough to offer. Hebrews 12.2 Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So again, there's that, there's that, okay, I'm looking at all that's going on. I'm thinking, Lord, I can't make it. I'm, how in the world am I going to make it through the day, much less the week? And Lord, it just it's all piling up. I can't take it anymore. It's, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Verse 3 says, Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Consider him and all that he went through so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lose our focus. We get distracted. We are no longer thinking and seeing things through God's perspective. He says, consider Him. Remember the opposition that He went through. Remember the difficulty that He faced for us so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. So whatever trials, struggles, difficulties you woke up with this morning, God's promise is fix your eyes on the Savior. Focus your thoughts on Him. Remember all that He went through. Remember that scene from that perspective. Consider him who endured such opposition. We think about all he went through and then realize we can focus on the things of God because he is the one that is giving us the strength. Temptation can be a real struggle. We may feel like we're... Have you ever felt like you're a child in the basket that your mom's pushing and you're going through the candy aisle? And all you want to do is grab something as many as possible? probably not, but some of us have felt that way. (laughs) Colossians 3.2 Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
So it may not be the candy aisle, but maybe you're looking through, you're paging through some stuff on Facebook or wherever, and you're seeing all of these things that are promising that your gadgets are going to be better, or they're going to be faster, or they're going to have more this or that or the other thing, and your life is going to be so much better if you have this. It's real easy to buy into that kind of thing, isn't it? Real easy to lose our focus and see the things of the world instead of seeing Christ. Jeremiah 29.13 says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me. When? When you seek me with all your heart. And, and, and you know what? That's one of those things where it doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter what the struggle is. When the, the second we realize, wait a minute here, I, I, my focus is way out of whack here. It's not where it's supposed to be. At that point in time is when we say, okay, Lord, <laughs> I want to seek you with all my heart. I want to find you in, in this situation and the struggle that I'm going. Lord, help me. I need your strength, your help. So just kind of to summarize this whole little section, we can put distractions in their place by refocusing. We can put the discouragements and the doubts and the fears in their place by refocusing, having a different perspective. And that's where these verses come in. Fix your thoughts on what is true. Think about what is excellent, praiseworthy. Consider Him who endured such opposition so you don't get tired and lose hope. Set your mind on the things above. Focus on where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of God. and, And don't lose your hope. He's interceding for you. And then seek Him with all your heart because He's promised when you seek, you will find me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your word and for the truth in your word. Thank you for the fact that you've made it so clear that you want us to live with your focus and with your point of view. And and, and we acknowledge, Lord, sometimes it's very hard for us to do. So we thank you for your word, which helps us to again see that we need to focus and refocus and continue to do that as we seek to honor you in the way that we live. Lord, go with us this morning. We ask for your encouragement and your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.